0: You may be seated in kids through fourth grade, you are dismissed to your classes. And as they are going, I'd love for us to take a moment here. Because we do live in a, a world that's very fast. Um, the world that we're moving in, is, the world we live in, moves quickly. Uh, we know that. We even put fast in front of our food, you know, and you're even at a place where you're expecting food to be given to you quickly. It's never quick enough, right? And the other day we were out and we, as we were traveling, I remember we were sitting in a restaurant and we were waiting and we waited about an hour for our food and we thought for some reason that was just unacceptable, you know, that you'd have to wait for an hour for someone else to make food for you, you know, type of deal. And we see in the world it's moving at such a hectic pace. And when you are moving at a hectic pace, If you're not careful, many times you don't stop and assess what's actually going on around you. You are just so quick to get moving, you don't even realize what's going on. And so for the next three weeks, I have the privilege of bringing us three different conversations that I'd love for us to pause on and assess. A moment when all the... I want, by God's grace, for the dust to settle, and for you, each one of you, to be able to look around and see where you're at, as well as what's going on around you. Because from the very, 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 very beginning, in the garden, when Adam and Eve were standing there and Satan attacks, he's attacking the family unit. And from that day on, all the way until now, the family has been under attack. Now, there are moments where we have ignored it, and thought everything was okay. Now, there have been moments where things are really heated and attacks are going on. But we live in a time period, and the culture we live in now has not just taken aim at the flags at the top of the castle. They are trying to attack and erode the very foundation of what makes family and what is family. And when we're walking through this, these conversations, I really want us to take a pause and to think, where are we? I'll give you an example. In my growing up years, my dad many times, a couple of times, I know for sure we had done this, and then many other times he would come along and say, hey, Tim, we need to have a talk. And immediately it was like, um, I didn't do it, you know, and we tried to figure out how I can blame this on one of my brothers. And as we're walking, usually we would come, if we had a family conversation, we'd all sit at the table, And it was awkward because usually the only time we sat at the table is when we were eating, and now we're not eating. And so, with three boys sitting around, they were just kind of like, What are we doing here? And my dad would start talking to us about something. And usually, the moment he would move off of me and start talking to one of my brothers, I would immediately check out. And then he would go, Tim, are you listening? And then I would just try my best to repeat whatever I thought I had just heard. And sometimes it was right, sometimes it wasn't. And I'd get, Tim, you know, you need to pay attention. And then after we were done these conversations, we, my dad would hopefully expect something to be different. Usually it was different for about 28 seconds. And then we went right back, and it was kind of like as my dad, you know, oh, okay. But we were trying. And so what I'd like to do today is have a family conversation. And as we have this conversation, I want us to think, because there's a lot of times as family... We immediately think we know what I'm talking about when I say family. So immediately some of you are doing the Tim version of this, checking out, because you're like, I'm not a dad, I'm not a mom, I'm a single person, or I'm an aunt, I'm an uncle, I don't have any of my own, as I would call it, my own biological kids. And immediately you're like, well, this hasn't anything to do with me, I can check out and move on. And I'm going to, by God's grace, encourage you that, no, I'm still talking to you as well. And God has something to say to you through this message. I want to talk about influencers. First conversation I want to talk about are what are those things that are influencing us? Many of the things I got from today's message come from an organization called D6 out of Deuteronomy 6 where they get the D6 concept. And so this chart that we're going to walk you through here for a second comes from out of one of their books. It was interesting when I first saw this, it, it kind of bothered me a lot, and I've been really messing around with it in my own mind. But out of the 168 hours a week that a child has, I can see it better here. 49% of 49 hours they are sleeping. Now, depending on your kid, that may be more or that may be less, all right? But roughly they're sleeping for 49 hours in that week. Another impact. Of that takes up that 168 hours is school, 35 hours. Now, that is just going to school. That's like when the bell rings and the bell ends, all right? We're not talking any extracurricular activities, all right? School. Then you see there another one, electronic influence, 45 hours is the average that people are involved with electronics, TV, phones, everything like that that are being used. Now, I'm not here to speak about that. That's a whole other topic. But I want you to look at another small circle that is there. Church discipleship. If you live in a family that is above average and you go to church four times a month, all right, you're there. If you're less than that, you can do the dividing out. One over 168, one hour out of 168 hours, does the average child spend in church? All right, and I would like to say, write that down and put after that, not enough. One over 168 is not enough. All right, we, besides myself, there's other pastors here that are phenomenal, but they can't do in one hour over 168 what the other circle that is not a circle there, but is there, the potential parent influence. You know how many I did the math for you? There's 38 hours of potential parent influence. Now it can get chopped up in a lot of ways. Sports, your own hobbies, everything else can chop up that, but every week there are 38 hours, and I'm saying if you do nothing to stop the the electronic thing, are you following that? Parents have 38 hours of potential influence on their child. Now, I don't want to put a guilt trip on you, I'm just going to give you some stats. The average teenager, someone did this, I don't know how they figured it out, but the average teenager per day, has less than 15-minute conversation with their parents. If you take up all the conversation that a teenager has, they've less than 15 minutes with their parent. Because I would argue the average family is not using those potential parental influences very well at all. And we sit here and we think about this and we could all go, yeah, yeah, I know, I I get it. But I want to start understanding how much influence we have as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, as singles on people around us. But I want to start with parents first. My daughter Hannah, when she was we brought her home from the hospital, she's starting to grow and starting to learn how to move, and she starts walking. And as she's walking, the first several steps she takes, she falls down, and she hits the ground, and immediately she looks at my wife and I. And Allison did one of these, (gasps) and immediately she started crying. And then one time she was with me, She fell down, and I'm like, I'm going to see if I can manipulate the situation here. Because she looks at me waiting for the response, and I went, wow, hey, like that. And she didn't cry. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to realize what? She's saying to me, mom and dad interpret the world around me. I just went down and went, boom. Is that good? Is that bad? What should I do? And then as they grow up, as they start to move and start to ask questions about things, and I start to explain certain things to them. I explain that a knife is sharp, and a stove is hot, and all of these things, and I'm influencing the world around them. Just like my dad, who's scared of heights, influenced me when I'm around heights, because guess what he kept telling me? Whoa, let's not get too close to the edge. You know, as a boy, I'm watching my dad walk up to the edge of something and stand here, and I'm like, why don't you go stand by? And he's like, that's just too, and all of a sudden, I'm like, maybe I should be scared of heights and they were influencing me. And even as I raise my kids here in an incredibly pagan Wisconsin world that is trying to breed into them this love of this Green Bay Packers team, and then as we have this influence that moves up from the south of this, of this, I think it's a minor league team down there in Chicago that comes up and I, I stand here <laughs> I stand here as a lighthouse for my kids who are bleeding eagle green where we grew up. And so when I go home, guess what we turn on? The Eagles. Yeah, we turn on, yeah. And if we turn on the Packers, just to see the Eagles score down below, you know. And as we watch through this, I'm able to influence them to like something that literally the rest of our culture around is telling them that's just some team in the East who cares about them. You're seeing the influence that we have. For those of you who grow up not even liking sports, I would argue it's probably because your parents didn't like them either, and what they do and how they interact. We have this influence on our youth and on our kids that are growing up and how we interact with them. It's interesting, though, too, that we live in a world where, for the most part, as I would argue, that grandparents don't even know what to do. Should I be involved in my kids' life? Should I not be involved in my kids' life? Do I have to wait until they ask me to be involved in their lives? I'm not sure what to do. Aunts and uncles, same thing. Well, I don't want to step on toes, or I don't want to do this. And we're confused. And we don't know how to use our influence very well. But I want to be very clear to you. No matter where you are in that process of those things, you can have a major influence. I think about this. So my family's in Pennsylvania, all right? Very few of them on my side of the family even live remotely close to this, but there was an aunt who's no longer with us. She died of cancer, had a massive influence on my kid's life, so much that even today when she was a quilter, so we have way too many quilts of hers left over, when we have all of these quilts from Aunt Norma, they remember it. They can even hold it up and remember the smell that she had. And I'll tell you what, she did not know the things about God but she still had a major impact on their lives. And you know what the, and I'll tell you how crazy hard it was. On their birthday, she would call and sing happy birthday. And at her funeral, the number one thing that everybody said they were gonna miss about Aunt Norma was the birthday song. And you look at that and say, but she's an aunt, and you know what? She never, God never allowed her to have children. And the impact she had on my own kids let alone the impact she had on others was huge, because she took those years of influence and used them by, in small little ways. How many of you celebrate an open Christmas presents on Christmas Eve? Any of you raise your hand? Let's let's do a real survey here. None of these little half-hearted things. How many Christmas Eve? How many Christmas Day? All right, are there any people that are uh, married? If you're Christmas Day people, good job, you're on the right path. How many of you Christmas Day people married a Christmas Eve person? All right, how many of you had an issue when that first came up of like, what are we doing here? And why do you open gifts when you do? Most likely it's because of what? Well, your parents did growing up. I married a veterinarian's daughter who they just celebrated whenever. And that was just mind-boggling me because Georgies only celebrate on the day. You miss it, we almost don't celebrate it because that's the day you celebrate it. And so our family was like, wait a minute. And then she threw a new ringer at me, that this random one gift opening on Christmas Eve. And I'm going, what's up with that? That's really like the people who aren't, you know, content and they can't wait, you know, and I'm in my mind, I'm judging this whole process of like, what's up with that? And we have a battle because how we were raised and the influences upon how we were raised. But if you want to know what is the fastest way for one generation to know and love God like the other generation did, the fastest way, the fastest point is between a child and its parents. The influence that a parent has on this child to point them to the things of God. And now we want to be clear. As parents, we can point our children towards Christ, but we can't save them. One of the things we have to understand, our children need a Savior, and it is not me. And so I have to continually point them towards God, but I can't save them. They will stand before God on their own and give an account to what they have done. But by God's grace, I can create an atmosphere where the things of God are welcome. So with that being said, I want to take us to the family table. The second conversation that I'd love to have is around these family tables here. Now, you'll see them labeled one, two, and three. It's for me to remember and for you to remember too, which table I'm talking about. The first table that we're going to talk about here, I want you to just remember this. The people that are sitting at this table are those who are committed to the things of God. These, this, the, this table here would be the table like Joshua when he stood up, and said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. This table over here is going to be the table that is compromised. Now, at this table, there's two chairs. You see them here. One chair is going to be facing this way, and one chair is going to be facing this way. The one chair is going to be facing this way. These are the people that are saved, but are wrestling and battling with this, I know I should be here, but I'm not, and I need to be here, and this is a battle that is going on. The group that's sitting here in this chair, I would call the therapeutic moralistic deists. If you don't know what that means, I'll explain it to you real quick. Those who decide that, you know what, morality is good. We like the Christian moral thing, but don't ask me to sacrifice for anything. All right? We like the stuff of Christianity, but we're not going to make it personal. Another one would be, we'd be doing this here as well. This is the person that just likes the good feeling of church but are not committed to Christ in any way, and I would even call them lost, but just like the moral feel, because it makes you feel good. And by the time we get over here, table three is confused, absolutely confused about the things of God. Now, I'm gonna give us some biblical examples, and I really wanna try to get as practical as we can. The first one I wanna go through is Joshua here. So chapters 23 and 24 in the book of Joshua, Joshua is giving two last pushes, and when he gives this push in, the, in Joshua, he's giving two last sermons. And in the sermon that he is going to give, he shares with them, in a way, a call, a challenge. And the challenge he shares with them is this. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. He says, put away the gods of your fathers, all right, that they served in Egypt and serve the Lord. And then he's going to say, listen, I'm asking you to be committed because as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he lays it out for them. You can choose this or you can choose that. Whatever you choose, I'm telling you what we're going to do. We're going to be committed to God. Now, it's interesting how this plays out. Because you go, what does a family who's committed to God look like? Joshua is here, and he knows the things of God. Joshua is here, and he's following after the things of God. He had the works. He had seen them. He's loving and obeying God, and he's living it out. But we get another group, and I'm going to put them in this chair here, would be the elders. And if you look at Judges chapter 2, I think it's verses 6 through 10, I want to walk through this. Now, to help you out and make real clear, Joshua dies at the end of Joshua. But Judges picks up halfway, a little bit near, so Joshua's still alive, and it takes us on from there, all right? So if you go, why did Joshua die, now he's back alive again, and Judges is because the books overlap. Are you following this? So Joshua dies, and he's, he dismisses the people after giving this, and he, then we see the verse says, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Joshua's committed. And then we see here that elders who outlived Joshua, but these elders had seen all the great works that the Lord had done. And so I'm placing them here because they have seen them, but they did not experience them. You do have an idea as if they're committed, but not to the same level that Joshua is. Because the text goes on to say in verse 10 that after these elders pass away, there's going to be a generation. And Joshua, in the next slide there, if we can get that, Joshua here, we said all the generations are gathered to their fathers, and there rose another generation that did not even know the Lord. Or the works he had done. And so we're over here at this confused table. Now, real quick, I'm not saying that every person who's committed will produce a compromised kid, and their comprom- this group is going to produce a confused kid. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying each one of us is going to grow up at one of these tables. And each one of us is also sitting at one of these tables. Because in your home, apartment, wherever, even for you students, in your little locker space that you kind of rule <laughs> in the school. The question is being asked, where are you? Here. I want to give some biblical examples of these playing out. Another one. Let's look at Samuel. Samuel had his two parents, right? We know of Hannah's unbelievable faith in God that she's coming and crying out that God would give her a child, right? And that she, we see them, their commitment to the things of God. And so Hannah's crying out to, Sam, to, uh, to God and she says, Lord, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you. And we place him in the committed area here. And she gives Samuel to Eli and Eli is now going to raise Samuel in the temple. And I would put Eli in this chair here looking that way. You may even, if you want to, put him in the committed chair either way. But notice what happened to both of Samuel and Eli's kids. Let's look at Eli's kids first. Eli's kids were known, and tells us in 1 Samuel 2.12, that they were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. So, Eli's kids are living at this table. Now, remember the influence that Samuel was being influenced by Eli. So, Eli's watch, Eli is teaching Samuel, and Samuel is watching Eli interact and parent. And what do we know about Samuel's kids? When the time that Samuel is ready to die, and here we have Samuel who was committed to God. And by the time that Samuel's kids are ready to kind of take over for Samuel, the Bible tells us, yet his sons did not walk in his way, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So they would be over here. One more example, biblically speaking, David. David is here, a man after God's own heart. Now, David's not perfect, we know that. It doesn't take long before you read the story of David that you realize he made several mistakes, but yet he was devoted to God in the way he responded. But now we come over here, and what do we have? Solomon, the Bible tells us he had a divided heart. The wisest man who ever lived yet allowed his heart to be divided, allowed to be away, From the things of God. And then we, by the time we have just Solomon's next child. Rehoboam. We're completely. Lost. Confused. The kingdom is divided. And you watch this whole thing play out. And it's it's a sad spiral. Effect. So what I'd like to do right now. Is walk through each one of these tables. And really give you an opportunity to do some assessment. What does it look like to be at each one of these tables. And I'm going to give us an example. We're going to walk through each one of these tables, how they view different things in life. And I want you to keep asking yourself, where am I? So let's start off with their view of God. Table one. Table one, their view of God is that they are to have a relationship with God, and their relationship with God is personal and real and vibrant, and yeah, it's going to have ups and downs, but they are pursuing after Him. Table two sees God is a responsibility, something that I have to do. So I check off, been to church, check. All right, these people over here, remember, are moralistic, therapeutic deists, right? Who are just using the Bible to help them morally and gives them their kind of almost like this therapy that makes them feel better. This group over here just does religious things because it kind of makes them look good. By the time we get over here, God is just religion. It's not really for them. It might be for you guys over there, but it's just not for me. And if I have anything religious to say, it's kind of old hat. That was archaic. It's not for me. All right, now let's look at the way and what we love. What does each one of these tables love? Table one, love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Table two, we love God unless something else better is coming down the pike right now. And by the time we get over here, we're just in love with ourselves. So, you know, nothing against selfies, but you get that concept, right? I'm so wonderful, I just need to take a picture of myself, right? We get over here, again, let's look at the way and what we focus on. What is their focus? When you're sitting at this table, where are we focused? We, this table here, table one, is focused on people. They're focused on others, this table here is focused on possessions. What can I possess? And so, I'm continually going out grabbing as many things as I can possess. And by the time you get to table three, their focus is on whatever makes me look better. So, all I care about is what looks good. Over here, we're willing to give up things for others. Here, we're just going, no, 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 that might, you know, cause me to not have what I would like. Let's look at the way they view themselves because we get a lot of talk in our, in our world right now of this self-stuff, all right? So how do they view themselves? Table one understands that they have been called to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after God. You get to table two here, and they live for self. By the time you get to table three here, they can't even find themselves, and they're confused. You see where our society is going? We don't even know what human is, because I would say we have drifted so far away. Now, let's look at the way they view marriage, because marriage, we know, is under attack, completely def- redefined in everything. Table 1 views marriage as a covenant between God and man. Table 2, our compromise table use marriage as a contract. So, if I'm happy in my contract, I stay. When things go south, I just break my contract and we're good to go. By the time we get to our confused table here, marriage is just for convenience. So, literally, I get married because it's a thing to do and maybe because I look good and white, and so I get married, and when it doesn't work out or an upgraded version comes along, I just move on to wherever I go. Let's look at the way each one of these tables parents. Table one, their desire is that they would point their kids to know and love God. Notice it said point their kids to know and love God. Table two, you want good kids, but you don't want them to be radical or stick out. You don't want any of those like weird, you know, those people over there because, you know, they're going to be awkward. So you want your kids just to fit in with society. By the time we get over here, all we care about in the parenting world, is as long as they're successful and whatever we define happy to be, we want happy kids. As we walk through this, remember when Pastor Chuck last week gave us the discipleship process? This group over here is lost in desperate need of knowing Christ. This group here is in desperate need of knowing Christ, but they're at a point of What? pointing them towards the things of God, right? This chair obviously needs to be turned, right? This group over here are the disciple makers. Those who should be looking over here saying, how can I influence and impact those around us? Now, how do we influence them? I'm going to ask you to do some of the slides. Can you go all the way back to that Deuteronomy 6 verse that I skipped? I want you to look at Deuteronomy 6 here. Notice what Moses is telling the Israelite people to do. These words shall be on your heart today, he's giving them. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Meaning it doesn't happen by accident. There needs to be an act of understanding the influence. And how do you do it? In the daily ebb and flow of life, as you talk, as you walk, as you sit, as you lie down, as you rise. These influences that are here. Moses, as God had told him, understood how do we do this? Through the influence that we have in our daily patterns and conversations. Now, what I'd love for us to do here for a moment, I'm going to try to get as practical as we possibly can. We all know if you're sitting here and you go hey Tim we all know we're supposed to be at table 1 I get it you know that's where the good christians are right you know none of us see ourselves at table 3 you may have been grown up in a family of table 3 all right but we all know we're supposed to be over here right you know and who do we think is at table 1 Of course, all the pastors, all the good people, right, you know, and all of that. Now I'm going to leave and feel sorry that I'm not at table one and I'm not going to know how to be at table one and I'm going to try to be at table one but I'm going to find out I'm not and then all of a sudden, you know, and what's the use? And I look at my own life and when I start looking at my own life and I start realizing the areas of influence that I have had on my own kids, some good, many not so good, I'll give you a not-so-good one that's kind of comical. We're, I'll be outside. I'll be, let's say a log or something like that falls on one of my kids, right? And they, their foot is bleeding. And they kind of look at me, and I have taught them by not... I've never said this to them, but I kind of taught them, if it's not squirting, don't really talk to me. If it's dripping, you'll be all right. You know. If it's squirting, then we can. then maybe we'll get a Band-Aid type of deal, all right? And so, guess who they run to when they get hurt? Not me. All right, because I'm always going to say, you know, suck it up, buttercup, and keep moving on. You know, you want to see a real injury, I'll give you, you know. And so, I found out that in my way of interacting with them, I've literally caused them to go where when they get hurt? Anywhere but dad, right? And so, I'm starting to look and go, wait a minute. Where are those areas? And then I start looking at my own life, and I start going, I wonder where are those areas that I've compromised on? I'm sure there's areas that I've compromised that I don't even know I've compromised because I've determined con- that that compromise is okay. And so I'll, sh- I'll show you. Now, the Lord had this set up. When Michelle and I were putting these tables up, I did not know this was going to be the harder chair to sit in, but it works perfectly because all of these chairs over here are much more comfortable, and guess where I find myself going? I find myself sitting here because it's really close to the committed table. And I can, I can really kind of feel it, and so I can be compromised in some areas. Because I'll be honest, I don't want weird kids. You know, I want them to fit in, right? I want them to be happy. I, I want to be happy. But it shouldn't be a happiness devoid of what God has called us to. Because happy for happy's sake only gets you so far. And so when I start sitting here and I start looking at this and going, you know what? This can become a job to me. You know, in a couple of minutes, in ten minutes, technically I'm done my job, right? We'll go a couple more minutes. I'll give it overtime, right? And so I can sit here and I can make these things responsibilities, right? I can make them, well, you're a pastor, so you're supposed to do this stuff. And I can find myself sitting in a chair of compromise way too easily. Because you know what? This takes work. This takes daily, as Paul says in Romans 12, renewing of my mind. It takes a continual understanding of who God is and who I am. Because I need to remind myself that the gospel is not the diving board that launches me into the Christian walk. The gospel is the pool that I dive into and I need it every single day. I need God's redeeming grace every single day because when I wake up, my selfish, sinful self is saying, let's go, Tim. And if I do not battle sin, as John Owen says, continually be mortifying sin because sin never takes a day off. All right, continually attacking sin because sin is continually attacking you. And that's why I need to put on the full armor of God every day. And as I start looking at those things and I start playing them out, this word should come to all of our hearts, and I pray, the idea of being intentional. Intentionality. How do I stay where God wants me to be? Because we know, as the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. prone to lead the God I love, meaning that I wake up in the morning and I go, all right, as for me and my small little lot that's not even an acre in Williams Bay, we're going to serve the Lord. And you know what happens? I'm prone to do what? Start going over here. And I'm prone to keep moving. Because you know what? Let's be honest. If you're in the confused world, it's really easy because you just make it up and then you're good to go, Right? That's right, That's sure, that sounds right, off we go. But over here, I've got to learn how to deny myself and actually listen to what God is saying. And so my question for us is this, how are we being intentional with what God has given us? For you parents, how are you waking up that day saying, how can you use the time that God has given you to be intentional? That, that small little area. I want to talk to you parents real quick here, especially those who've got younger kids and teenagers and things like that. When you wake up in the morning, school's going to be starting, and here's what happens. You wake up, if you wake up on time, there's usually about seven or eight times of, come on, guys, get up, get up, get up, right? And then when you finally get them up, you're, you're down there, and there might be some type of whining about the breakfast that is being served or something else like that, and there's frustration, all right? And then someone's going to spill something, or there's going to be some bodily fluid that's going to do something, and now you're trying to work on all of these things here, and you're just basically going, get out the door, And we'll just, whatever you're, you know, two socks, good. I don't care if they match or not, you're out. I don't care if the pants are backwards. We're just moving you there. You can figure it out when you get to school. We get them to school on time. And before you know it, there went a chunk of potential parent influence, right? And you go, what do I do with that? And then when we say redeem the time, you're like, I don't even know how to redeem the time. I mean, I'm just trying to get them to move. Well, let me give you one small little thing. Even if you take this small little step, snag one of them in that moment of chaos, sit them down even for 10 minutes say, I just want to pray with you real quick. Is there just one thing you want me to pray about? Even if it was 15 minutes, I mean 15 seconds, and in that 15 seconds you got a this on your shirt, you got a, hey mommy, 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 we need that. You know what that meant to that one child for that 15 seconds? that my parent cared enough about me to do what? To pray. Now imagine if grandparents did that. Imagine if aunts and uncles did that. Um, What would it look like if we started going, okay, remember back Aunt Norma who does not, it's not like she's gonna swing in before school and pick up one of my kids and do something, right? She lives in Pennsylvania, we live in Wisconsin, right? And small little things, notes, different things like that that get sent, that shows that we're thinking of you. Using that influence. Many times we don't take advantage of things like that. I want to give you just, we have a little bit of time here, I want to give you just one example of influence that happened this last Saturday morning that I can guarantee you none of the guys thought that they were doing anything. And imagine if we just turned to just one notch so we were setting up for the changing place, all right, and there's a group of guys that set up the changing place on Saturday morning, and I drove the van up and we met for breakfast, and I decided to take Timmy along with me, and so we're sitting there around the table, and these guys are just having fun with each other, just enjoying each other, kind of poking at each other, laughing with each other, all right? You know what they're teaching my son right then and there, who's in junior high? Guess what junior high I struggle with? making fun of each other, right? You know what they're teaching them? How to make fun of, how to banter with one another that's not personal. Because none of them were taking it personal. They were just laughing, and Timmy was laughing with them, and they were having a time interacting together. Now imagine if just one of those guys would have turned and just said anything at that moment of encouragement. How much further that moves. And now there are some that did. I don't have time to tell you some of the cool things that happened in that, but I'm just giving you, do you see what happened there? By just sheer, just Interaction. Because there's a lot of opportunities of intentionality that are there for us that we just skim right by and we miss. And if you take nothing away from this sermon, here's the thing I want you to take away. One thing, that God would open your eyes to those areas of influence that you're having with those around you and to be using it for the glory and honor of him. And that doesn't mean That you're carrying your Bible with you, and at every moment you go, stop. Let me read to you the whole Pentateuch. All right, all right. What I'm saying is the ebb and flow of your daily life, of how you can encourage and how you can give a word of encouragement to those around you. Because I can guarantee you this: there are so many parents that are sitting here, and they feel like their their chair's not even here. It's all the way over here, and they feel defeated. And they go, I don't know how to raise these kids. And you know what they don't need. Someone else saying, Boy, I'm glad I'm not raising kids at your age. Well, that's that's encouraging, right? <laughs> you know, and, and instead instead of going, listen, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? How can I encourage you on? As an aunt and an uncle, we can sit here and shake our hands and go, Can you imagine that the world sins? Like, yeah. That's what I believe that sinners sin. All right? And sing and go, no. How do we encourage each other to live as godly in this present age, right? How do we encourage each other in the faithfulness that God has given us? Now, there's one song that I'd love for us to end with. We're not going to sing it. I want you to listen to it. It's a song that Andrew Peterson wrote from the doxology at the end of Romans 11, where Paul is getting through talking about the great salvation and the great work of salvation that God has done, and he just lets loose with, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, as we were mulling this over, the Lord had given us an opportunity as a family to go to the Grand Canyon. Now, as we were sitting there at the Grand Canyon, you would see people coming up and seeing it for the first time. That was almost really exciting to see them go, wow, that's really grand, you know. And as they're coming up here and they look at this, not a single person went like that, looked and went, oh, hey, that's a cool little shrub over here. No, no. They looked at it, you know what they said? Look at the depth of that. Look at the grandeur of it. Look how huge it is. And they were pointing to one another. Look at it. Look at how wonderful these things are. Nobody said, hey, look at how great I am. Look at my cool shirt that I'm wearing. No. Because when you stand there and you see the depth of the Grand Canyon, and you see the massness of it, you immediately feel this big, and you immediately realize that there's a whole lot more going on in this world than you've ever thought about. And all of a sudden this song and this concept came to me going, That's my job. And it's a privilege to do that. To to look at those around me, those who I have areas of influence, my kids, those who I am interacting with to say, Look at the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. They're unsearchable. We tried walking down the Grand Canyon a little bit. We got like a half a mile down and we realized that's a little bit more than we're gonna bite off to chew today. So we decided to go right back up and realized, wow, that's huge. And we paused and and it caused me as a dad to go, do my kids view God that way? Because if we're at table two, God becomes boring and archaic. If we're at table one, The depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God are unsearchable and my kids go, there's more to know. And so I'd love for you guys as we listen to this song to assess where are we? Where are you? What table was I raised on? And where am I now? And what is the next step that God is calling me to do? So let's listen to this song as we contemplate.